Welcome to our podcast. I'm Tom. And I'm Jen. We've got a fascinating episode for you today. We're delving into the mysterious interplay of psychopathy and everyday sadism. That's right, Jen. We're referencing a study that tried to untangle the threads between measures of subclinical psychopathy and everyday sadism, and it's telling us they might not be as different as we think. Before we dive into the paper by Blotner and Mokros from 2023, let's set the stage for why this is significant. The thought of psychopathy conjures up images of cold, calculating villains, but there's far more to it in psychological terms. For sure. Psychopathy is often characterized by a lack of empathy and remorse, a certain boldness and antisocial behaviors. Sadism, on the other hand, is typically defined by taking pleasure in causing pain to others. It's chilling stuff, Tom. Indeed, Jen. But the interesting part is that these two traits have been measured in various ways, leading to something called the jangle fallacy, which means names are different, but the concepts might overlap. Right, and Blutner and Mokros are revisiting this with more comprehensive assessments and specific criteria. The goal is to see if that overlap is really there, or if we can truly separate psychopathy from everyday sadism. Now on to methodology. This study was careful and methodologically sound, using long scales, which are detailed questionnaires about different traits and robust statistical analyses. Exactly. And they found that the psychopathy and sadism factors were almost perfectly correlated, Tom. Um, that basically throws into question whether they're really different at all. The implications are huge, Jen. If validated, this could shift how we understand and diagnose these traits. It makes you wonder if we've been looking at two sides of the same coin all along, doesn't it? Absolutely. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. This calls for more research across different populations and with different measures. Wrapping this up, their findings reinforce the idea of the jangle fallacy, that subclinical psychopathy and everyday sadism might just be redundant terms for a linked concept. It's a shakeup for psychologists, researchers, and anyone interested in the dark side of human personality. Folks, the take-home message here is that the line between psychopathy and sadism is blurrier than we thought. And this study has laid that out in spades. Thanks for tuning in and keep an eye out for further developments in this intriguing field. Until next time, stay curious, question the established, and don't be afraid to unravel the complexities of the mind. Hey folks, are you ready for a revolutionary way to test your darker personality traits? Introducing Psyche Sad Simulator, the first all-in-one virtual reality experience that brings out your inner mastermind or mischievous trickster. With PsycheSad Simulator, you strap on a VR headset and walk the line between a virtual psychopath's cunning scenarios and a sadist's oddly satisfying but harm-free pranks. Confused about whether you're a cold-hearted strategist or just in for the giggles of pretend despair? Our patented dark mirror technology reflects your choices with shockingly accurate psych profiles. Ever wanted to plan a master heist like a supervillain, only to switch it up with a virtual pie-in-the-face gag? Psyche Sad Simulator says, why not both? Collect points for your moral ambiguity. Compete with friends. Are you a puppet master or prankster extraordinaire? The answer might just surprise you. Download Psyche Sad Simulator today, where the only thing you have to lose is your mysteriously blurred line between psychopathy and sadism.
Disclaimer, PsycheSAD Simulator is for entertainment purposes only. Please do not use your results as a self-diagnosis. Or do, we're not the boss of you. Jump into the fun side of psychological assessment with PsycheSAD Simulator, where the only danger is dying of laughter. Welcome back, listeners, to another insightful episode of our podcast. I'm Tom. And I'm Jen. Today, we're diving into a fascinating and futuristic topic, the use of artificial intelligence in simulating family and parenting relationships. Absolutely, Jen. We're unpacking a groundbreaking paper by Camille Rafakov on modeling of family and parenting relationships for artificial intelligence parenting systems. This paper could redefine how we understand and implement AI in our daily lives. It's a significant leap in the intersection of technology and social sciences. The paper underscores the complexity of human relationships and the possibility of codifying them into parameters that AI systems could potentially understand and replicate. Before we get into the nitty-gritty, let's lay down some context. Family and parenting are intricate constructs that go beyond biological links. They're central to our social fabric. They influence everything from emotional development to cultural perpetuation. Exactly, Tom. And considering the rapid advancements in AI, Rafakov's work is timely. It aims to translate these complex human interactions into a format that AI could be configured to recognize and possibly to recreate. Delving into this paper, we'll explore concepts like family models, parenting styles, social parameters, and how these can be theoretically transferred to an AI system. Not an easy task. Despite the complexity, We'll break it down and make it intuitive for our listeners. But remember, these are sensitive topics, so the paper navigates to keep the scientific essence intact while considering diverse cultural and legal perspectives. Now let's get technical with the methodology that underpins Rafikov's research. He synthesizes information from various disciplines, from anthropology to psychology, and adds his personal insights from travel experiences across 40 countries. This synthesis aimed to abstract parenting and family dynamics into clear parameters, a set of factors with which you can assess or define relationship dynamics. Fascinatingly, these parameters measure familial constructs like nuclear versus extended family, cultural basements of these models, communication rhythms, and even the level of autonomy. Indeed, Jen. And what's revolutionary here? The application of these parameters to guide AI systems in recreating family dynamics essential for projects as ambitious as raising human colonies on other planets. Moving on to the core of the research, Rafikov lists over 20 parameters for family models and 50 for parenting models. These are distilled from both his experiences and academic literature. These parameters range from the acceptance levels for cohabitation without romance to a detailed breakdown of the division of household responsibilities. And let's not forget the kids' stuff. When it comes to parenting models, the paper looks at child well-being, emotional values assigned to children, and the age when kids are considered thinking humans. Now, why is this important, you might wonder? Because AI systems need a thorough understanding of what constitutes familial and parenting roles. It's about creating a blueprint for AI to grasp the dynamics that it'll need if it's to replicate or support these roles in the future. Which brings us to the implications and applications. Imagine the impact on AI development if we can accurately model these complex relationships. Absolutely, Jen. We're talking about AI systems that could support single parents, 
model healthy family dynamics in educational settings, or even develop better social care systems. But on to the conclusion, we circle back to what Rafikov's paper really stands for, a bold step towards harmonizing AI with the intricacies of human relationships, all based on a comprehensive set of parameters born from interdisciplinary research and global cultural insights. In reflecting on the paper, one thing stands out. As we advance technologically, maintaining our humanistic values in these AI systems is crucial. It's a reminder that technology and humanity are in an ever-evolving dance. And that dance, dear listeners, could take us from our earthly homes to nurturing the future of humanity among the stars with AI as our trusted partner. What a thought to end on. But that's all the time we have today. This was an eye-opening jaunt through Camille Rafikov's impactful work. We hope you've enjoyed it as much as we did. Don't forget to tune in next time as we unravel another intellectual gem. Thanks for being with us. I'm Jen. And I'm Tom. Keep pondering the big questions, and we'll catch you on the next wave of sound. Goodbye. Ever wish you could tune up your family dynamics like you do your car? Well, now you can. Introducing Family AI Dynamics, your one-stop shop for the perfect family algorithm. Is grandma not syncing with your Gen Z? Just adjust the cross-generational communication parameter. Or maybe you want to trial a virtual uncle who tells better jokes. With Family AI Dynamics, you're in control. Want a family pet but allergic to everything? Try our AI Cuddles, the digital dog that fetches your emails. Plus, for a limited time, upgrade to our Parenting Pro package and get a virtual AI in-law that actually gets your vegan lifestyle. Head on over to familyadynamics.com and start your free trial. Because who said you can't choose your family's firmware? Family AI Dynamics, where family values meet value statements. Welcome to today's episode of our podcast, where we'll dive deep into the fascinating world of audiovisual congruence and its impact on our perception and aesthetic appreciation. This is a topic that bridges art, science, music, and psychology, so get ready for a journey into how we experience and make sense of contemporary art and music. Our discussion is centered around an illuminating research paper, which takes an empirical look at how audiovisual congruence influences our subjective experience. We'll be breaking down complex scientific concepts like cross-modal correspondence and the kiki-booba effect to give you a detailed understanding of this phenomenon. But before we even get into the nitty-gritty, let's set the stage with some background. We live in a world where our senses are constantly bombarded with information. But it's not just about what we see or hear in isolation. It's about how these sensory inputs come together to form a coherent and often emotionally impactful whole. Absolutely, Tom. The paper we're discussing today comes from researchers at the Max Planck Institute for Empirical Aesthetics and other institutions. They've examined whether there is a perceivable cross-modal correspondence between highly complex and multidimensional stimuli, such as contemporary music and visual art, which is quite a departure from more traditional studies focusing on basic shapes and sounds. So what does that look like in practice? Well, the researchers conducted a pre-registered online experiment where participants were exposed to different conditions involving audio, visual, and audiovisual stimuli. They used the Kentler International Drawing Space's Music as Image and Metaphor exhibition, where music was composed specifically for the visual art featured. 
That setup allowed them to explore whether the congruence of these audiovisual pairings would impact participants' aesthetic experience. This hits right at the heart of why this paper is significant. It challenges our understanding of how we experience multimodal artistic presentations, extending our knowledge of cross-modal correspondences beyond the simple to the complex real-world abstract art and music. Now, let's get into the core findings. What did the researchers discover? They found that although participants spent the most time with audio-only presentations, they felt most moved in the audio-visual conditions, suggesting a disconnection between the perception of time spent and the emotional impact. Right? And despite the audio-visual pairings being artist-intended or randomly shuffled, there were no significant differences in the subjective ratings or the time participants spent with each piece, except that the intended pairings were perceived to have greater correspondence. This finding challenges the use of time spent as an implicit measure of aesthetic appreciation in multimodal conditions. Coming to the implications and applications, these findings could have a profound impact on how we approach the exhibition of visual art particularly in the digital space where audiovisual pairings are becoming increasingly common. Concluding our episode, what do these insights mean for us and the broader field? For one, they highlight the importance of collaborations between scientists and artists in generating new, meaningful research questions and extending the reach of both art and science to the public. Exactly, Jen. It's a powerful reminder of how intertwined our sensory experiences are and the, and the exciting possibilities that emerge when science meets art. This paper shows us that contemporary music and visual art can create a complex, congruent experience that moves us, even if we're not consciously aware of it. And that wraps up our take on the role of audiovisual congruence in perception and aesthetic appreciation of contemporary music and visual art. We hope you enjoyed this deep dive into the intersection of the senses and found it as enlightening as we did. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time for another thought-provoking discussion. Are you tired of monotonous gallery visits that leave you saying, meh? Then get ready for an innovative twist that will have your emotions doing the cha-cha. Introducing Senesthetica. It's the game-changing service transforming your art and music experience by mixing things up, quite literally. Synesthetica curates audio-visual pairings that'll tickle your fancy in ways you never expected. Fancy a little classical art with some techno beats, or perhaps a contemporary sculpture with smooth jazz. Synesthetica shuffles combinations till you find the incongruent mix that surprisingly moves you to tears or laughter. Perfect for museums looking to add some pizzazz or for the adventurous art lover who thinks they've seen it all. Synesthetica, where art meets the unexpected soundtrack of your wildest dreams or memes. Subscribe now and get your first accidental masterpiece today. Synesthetica, confuse your senses in the best way. Welcome everyone to another episode of our award-winning podcast. I'm Tom. And I'm Jen. Today, we have a really fascinating topic lined up for you. We're diving deep into the intricacies of understanding and cultivating effective listening, a dialectical theory of the tensions between mindset and behavior. Now, Jen, we often hear about the importance of effective listening, whether it's in our personal lives, the professional realm, or even within the context of leadership and training. 
But what exactly makes listening effective, and why can it sometimes seem so challenging to achieve? That's exactly what we're going to unpack today. And to get us started, it's crucial to give you, our dear listeners, some contextual background. This paper is significant because despite the age-old advice that we should listen more and speak less, actual empirical research on how to improve listening skills and the effects of listening training has been surprisingly mixed. Absolutely, Jen. And when we talk about listening, it's not just about waiting for your turn to speak. The paper we're discussing today argues that high-quality listening is a multifaceted behavior that supports performance and outcomes in professional fields, ranging from coaching and leadership to sales and beyond. Precisely. And what's super interesting is that researchers identified tensions between the technical performance of listening and the listener's mindset. In other words, you could have the skills to listen, but if your mindset isn't aligned, the effectiveness of your listening may be compromised. And this brings us to some of the complex topics we'll be teasing apart today. We're going to look at themes such as the way of being and inner work, and how these relate to what the paper describes as holistic listening and observable listening behaviors. We'll also navigate through some of the technical methodology jargon, like thematic analysis, as we explore how the research gathered and analyzed data to come up with its findings. Now, moving into the core content of this research, Jen, the objectives were clear. They wanted to understand how lay practitioners perceive effective listening and how listening training is typically approached. Right, and the methodologies used were fascinating, Tom. The research analyzed a wide range of listening training materials sourced from the World Wide Web, employing what they call thematic analysis. Essentially, they systematically examine these resources to understand the common themes in how listening is being taught. And boy, did they find some interesting results. The key findings pointed to five main themes that lay practitioners identified as crucial to effective listening. This includes listener behaviors, the listener's way of being, the internal work a listener must do beforehand, holistic listening, and the techniques used in training. As for the implications and applications these findings can have, Tom, we're looking at a potential game changer for how listening skills are taught across professional fields. Imagine the impact on diversity and inclusion training alone. Absolutely, Jen. And as we conclude today's episode, we're going to bring it all together by recapping the main points and we'll share our personal reflections on the paper and its broader relevance to our listeners. Can't wait to sink our teeth into this one, Tom. So, without further ado, let's get into the heart of effective listening, a dialectical theory, and explore what makes us all ears. Stay tuned, listeners, as we embark on this auditory journey of discovery. Are you tired of awkward silences, miscommunications, and feeling like no one gets you? Well, perk up those ears because we've got the solution, introducing the revolutionary app, Dialiston. With Dialiston, gone are the days of nodding and smiling through conversations. Our app uses cutting-edge dialectical algorithms to guide you through the tension-filled landscape of listening. Need to hold your tongue and not offer advice? Dialiston vibrates gently to remind you to zip it and tune in. And with our empathy echo feature, you'll not only hear what's said, but feel it too because sometimes you need to walk a mile in someone's earbuds. 
Plus, for those moments when you're about to retreat into your mind palace, Dialisten flashes friendly reminders like, Stay with us, champ! So download Dialisten today and transform from a serial nodder to a dialectical listener ninja. Dialisten. Because listening is a contact sport, and we're here to coach you to victory, one conversation at a time. Welcome, folks, to another deep dive episode of our podcast. I'm your host, Tom, and as always, I'm joined by the brilliant Jen. Hey, everyone. Today, we're going to unravel the mysteries behind a fascinating topic, the role of nature versus nurture in the detection of sour notes. This is a real treat for both music lovers and science enthusiasts. Indeed, Jen. Before we delve into the specifics, let's set the stage by understanding why this subject is so significant. Music as we know it is a universal language. However, the way we process and understand music can be influenced by various factors, including our genetic makeup and our environment. That's right, Tom. The paper we're discussing today, Nature versus Nurture in the Detection of Sour Notes, offers insight into how simple frequency ratios like 2-1, 3-2, and 4-3, commonly found in musical scales, might naturally facilitate the perceptual encoding of melodies. To provide some background, these frequency ratios are integral to Western music and many other cultural soundtracks. They're thought to promote consonants when played simultaneously and may play a role in how we perceive melodies, which are sequential rather than simultaneous tones. Here's where the nature versus nurture debate heats up. Some argue that our proficiency at distinguishing these ratios and detecting sour notes, or notes that don't align with the expected scale, may be innate, a product of our auditory neurophysiology. Others suggest it's the result of our musical acculturation, the implicit learning we gain from passive exposure to music throughout our lives. In a series of meticulous experiments, the researchers trained adults to detect sour notes within various musical scales, including novel ones, to see if frequency ratio simplicity would make the task easier. Now, if we break down some complex terminology used in this study, Frequency ratio simplicity refers to the mathematical relationships between the pitches of notes. Isochronous melodies mean that the tones occur at regular intervals, and one semitone error describes a deviation from the expected pitch by the smallest interval commonly used in Western music. That's a great explanation, Jen. The key findings revealed that practice improved the participants' performance for most scales, indicating a learned element. However, regardless of the amount of training or practice, scales with simpler frequency ratios, those closer to the natural ratios, were consistently easier to detect for errors. A crucial implication of this research could be the understanding that our auditory system, and possibly those of other mammals, seems to have an innate preference for certain pitch relationships. These preferences naturally influence our ability to process and learn musical scales. To wrap up, the researchers' analysis of the sour notes also suggested that melodies are not processed just as a series of intervals, but within a framework of harmonic relations, hinting that our perception of music might be deeply rooted in the biology of our auditory system. Personal reflection time. I find it extraordinary how our brains might be hardwired to resonate with certain aspects of music. It seems that while our environment shapes our musical experiences, there's a natural perhaps evolutionary inclination towards certain harmonic structures. Agreed, Jen. This study doesn't just further our understanding of music cognition, 
but also touches upon the profound connections between human culture, biology, and the arts. It's a beautiful symphony of interdisciplinary research that shows just how intertwined our lives are with the rhythm and melodies of nature. So whether you're a casual listener or a professional musician, remember that the music that moves you may be doing so on a more intrinsic level than you ever imagined. Thanks for tuning in to our episode. We hope you found it as intriguing as we did, and we can't wait to bring you more thought-provoking topics next time. Until then, keep exploring the science behind the music. Have you ever been to a party and a song comes on, but one note just sounds so off it twists your face into a pretzel? All the time, Tom. That's why we're excited to introduce Sour Detective, the ingenious app born from the groundbreaking research on nature versus nurture in music perception. That's right, folks. With Sour Detective, your phone listens to any song and uses advanced algorithms to spot those pesky sour notes that the untrained ear might miss. Not only that, but it also offers real-time tuning advice. Is your friend's guitar ever so slightly out of tune? Zing! Sour Detective to the rescue with a polite but firm notification. Plus, for all the karaoke enthusiasts out there, Sour Detective has a special feature called Pitch Perfector that gently nudges you back on track when you're flat or sharp. And for the parents, there's a lullaby mode that ensures every bedtime song is as harmoniously soothing as nature intended. Say goodbye to accidental nightmare-fueling notes. Dive into a world of pitch-perfect harmony with Sour Detective, where nature meets nurture and your ears can rest easy. Download now and never cringe at a sour note again. Terms and conditions apply. The app may not be held responsible for fixing broken hearts or sour relationships. That's a different kind of off-key.